Welcome to BDO in the Boardroom, a podcast series for board of directors and those charged with governance. Each episode features a topical discussion with board peers and subject matter experts on both trending and timeless boardroom issues, covering a myriad of issues including, but not limited to, mitigating risk in the increasingly digital world, navigating your board career, from landing your first board seat to succession planning in support of the next generation, to other top-of-mind issues such as ESG reporting, shareholder activism, and the insights we share through the BDO Center for Corporate Governance and Financial Reporting. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. Let's get started. I am Amy Rojek, Director of our Center for Corporate Governance, and I have the pleasure of sitting down today with Adam Epstein, former institutional investor and founder of Third Creek Advisors, LLC, to discuss the ins and outs of small cap corporate governance and the important role of the board. I've known Adam for several years now, and his insight, dry humor, intelligence, and frankness, along with his effective advice, normally leaves me and his audience with copious notes and immediate action items and to-dos. His continuing best-selling book, The Perfect Corporate Board, is hailed as a best read for those for charged with corporate governance, and it's essentially a pocket guide for the boardroom. And he promised me today that he won't be subtle, so please sit back and be prepared to be wowed. Adam, let's start with a little background from you. How did your days on the other side of the table as an institutional investor lead you toward advising small cap boards and management teams? You're... Uh... You're testing my memory right out of the shoot, Amy. <laughs> so, uh, so let's see. For for many years, I co-managed a, a special situation hedge fund operated by Enable Capital Management in San Francisco. Those of you who are listening who know San Francisco, we were based in the iconic Ferry Building, right where the Embarcadero and Market Street come together down near the Bay Bridge, and. The easiest way to describe what Enables Funds did was that we were like a public markets version of venture capital. Venture capitalists, of course, provide uh, growth capital directly to privately held high growth companies. Enable basically did the same thing, except we were providing growth capital directly to companies that are already publicly traded. And it's actually... Uh, funny in a way, Amy, that many people don't really know that this public company funding ecosystem even exists, yet in literally any given year, small public companies raise between 30 to sometimes 50 billion, billion with a B, uh, dollars. And so it's actually a larger market in some years than the IPO market, yet it's virtually uh, never discussed in venues like the Wall Street Journal, venues like the New York Times, CNBC, Bloomberg, et cetera. And perhaps that's, I don't know, a good subject for another another podcast. <laughs> in, right. uh, in, in any event, uh, Enable provided growth capital to more than 500 small cap companies over the years. And naturally, I and the other uh, portfolio managers had a a front row seat, if you will, to like the Clint Eastwood movie, the good, the bad, and the ugly of the life cycle of of small cap companies. And and look, you know, some of those movies, quote unquote, ended very well for our investors. But if I'm being perfectly candid, some of those movies uh, didn't turn out quite as well as we had hoped or expected. And 
after I retired from the buy side, I spent a fair amount of time visiting with and speaking to former portfolio companies to try and get a sense of why things went poorly for them. And unlike most fund managers, I actually had an operating career prior to uh, becoming a fund manager. So I was always more of a, a builder, I would say, at heart than a financer of companies. And it became really clear to me after speaking with those companies that corporate governance education in this country, and this is something that's probably not popular when I say it, but corporate governance education in this country is fundamentally broken. Uh, and what I mean by that is that existing programming in the United States has wrongfully presupposed and continues, frankly, to wrongfully presuppose that governance is kind of one size fits all. And the reason why that's presupposes because literally 99% of the programming is designed by large cap folks. Right? So the problem is that uh, if I were to put it succinctly and in the spirit of, of not being subtle is that governing a 20 person biotech company is absolutely nothing like governing Pfizer. And so a one size fits all approach to corporate governance is bound to either fail or underperform from the perspective of a former institutional investor. I mean, I saw this every day. And so I started my firm, Third Creek Advisors, uh, more than 10 years ago to kind of help bridge what I viewed as that enormous educative void and really help small cap companies develop boards that are, in, in a sense, competitive advantages instead of enormous detriments to shareholders. And as any of your listeners know who have started their own company, uh, Amy, you, you never know quite where it's going to lead. For me, it led to giving, I don't know, something like 200 global keynote speeches, uh, co-founding and, and writing for uh, many years, the only small cap focused corporate governance magazine column in the US, uh, writing the book uh, that you uh, referenced and you know even testifying in Washington. So it's, it's been a terrific experience, and I've been fortunate to meet uh, now, I'm sure, in the thousands of officers, directors, and boardroom experts all over the world. And so with that, uh, Amy, I'm going to mercifully stop talking about myself. <laughs> <laughs> no, you've had, a, you've had an, interesting, an interesting journey. And the thing that I, I like most about working with you is obviously we share a passion for the small cap board. And uh, I know that we've worked together in, in helping create some good governance content. So hopefully uh, present company excluded in your in your earlier statement, because I know this that's a that's an area that's near and dear to me. So let's 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 shift a little bit. And so I, I think when you know, to your point earlier, when people hear the term corporate board, too often they are thinking of those large Fortune 500 companies and reality, small cap companies that are publicly traded and that defined as anywhere from 200 million to 2 billion in market cap or thereabouts and below for nano and micro cap companies. So actually these companies make up the most significant component of the public markets and number in the thousands. So in the circles where I've traveled, directors who serve on both large and small public company boards really express significant differences between the two. So maybe you can provide us with some of the more distinguishing composition and operating characteristics of a small versus a large cap board. Yeah, so you're you're 100% Right, uh, Amy. From a, from a certainly from a data driven perspective, and while I know that 
most mainstream business media simply cover the same, you know, hundred public companies from every conceivable angle, believe it or not, there are actually more than 14,000 other public companies in the United States that are virtually ignored. And, and as I alluded to earlier, those smaller companies bear almost no resemblance to large cap companies. So uh, I could give you a few examples. So at a recent national governance conference, a pretty well-respected boardroom expert who will remain nameless uh, remarked that, quote unquote, and I recall them saying this, that you know, boards should really strongly consider having standalone risk, standalone strategy, and standalone cyber committees. And that is fast becoming a best practice, quote unquote, and boards, you know, you're on notice that that's really what you should be doing. And, and it, was, it was an interesting moment uh, because that might be true in large public companies. Reasonable people will differ, but I, it might be true that that is a prudent step in large public companies, but it's completely completely inapplicable for the overwhelming majority of public companies. Why? Because most U.S. public companies only have a handful of independent board members total who already serve on each of the three standing committees already. In other words, it's hardly a best practice, quote unquote, if it only applies to 10% of public companies. Uh, another uh, example I could think of, you know, kind of off the top of my head, a director uh, recently handed me an article from uh, a well-respected governance blog that also will remain uh, nameless. And, and the article was discussing why, quote, every board should have a well-thought-out strategy that's revisited annually for communicating transparently with proxy advisors. And, and again, perfectly fine advice for the largest 1,000 to 2,000 public companies. But here's the thing. Amy, that doesn't dawn on people who are quote unquote governance experts who are writing and speaking around the United States is that proxy advisors don't even cover the other 12 to 13,000 public companies, which by the way, are predominantly owned by retail investors, not large institutions. And it's always, I see the look all the time on large cap board members' faces and, and those that, uh, that are service providers that predominantly advise large cap companies. I see the look on their face when they hear this, but most public company board members don't care at all about proxy advisors, literally don't care at all. And neither do their investors, because again, for the other 12 to 13,000 public companies, proxy advisors don't cover them today and are frankly never going to cover them. So again, it's hard to, you know, hard to submit that that's something that every board should be doing. And I guess the, the third example I'll give you uh, is is again from a speaker I heard at that same national corporate governance event, and, and I'm going to stick with my no names practice here. But a central part of that session that I attended was on the board's role in managing cyber risk, and that's front, right, and center for 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 any board, right? Uh, and the the lengthy discussion of again, quote unquote, was what best practices are revolved around managing and interfacing with two people on every management team, quote unquote, chief information officers and chief information security officers. So again, probably great advice for the Fortune 1000, but here's the thing, Amy, you know, to your point, this, this quote unquote corporate governance expert renowned in the United States clearly did not know that most public companies in the United States don't even have a CIO or a CISO, 
right? So, I mean, I watched this session. It wasn't just me. I watched this session with a small cap board member. And she said to me on the way out of that session, quote, and I, I remember like it was five minutes ago, she looked at me and said, I think I might be at the wrong conference. So look, governing, and I'm going to say this, uh, maybe you'll let me get away with this and not edit this out, but I'm going to say one more time to make the point that governing a 20-person biotech company is nothing like governing Pfizer. And so I promise I won't say it again, but I had to get it in one more time. <laughs> <laughs> no, point taken. Um, so, so listen, the, the importance of a strong board leadership in the small cap space obviously can't be overstated, right? So, so we do have the chance to participate together in several boardroom events, or we've had the chance, I should say, over the years. And I'm always struck by your common sense approaches that when uttered out loud, I, I literally watch the whole room grab their pens and start scribbling notes. So please give me an example or two of some of your favorite governance advice that you've shared with your clients. And, and if you can uh, elaborate on the expressions or their reactions for our group today, that would be fun as well. <laughs> Without naming names, of course. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm gonna stick to no names. That's the best policy. So uh, I said, earlier that something like 30 to 50 billion with a B of growth capital, uh, 30, 50 billion dollars, pardon me, of growth capital is raised by small cap companies uh, every year. Here's an amazing thing about this enormous financial market uh, that no one really seems to want to talk about in the light of, of day. I know this not only from my days of writing a lot of those checks as an institutional investor, but also I know from the last 10 years of advising an awful lot of boards that when companies transact these financings, so many of them rely almost 100% on the advice of their investment bankers as to which transactions uh, to actually effectuate. And on the face of it, it doesn't sound odd. Bankers are experts in financings, and it's why it's why you you hire them, right? So, except that those same investment bankers, and again, this is going to be brutally candid, but it's the only way you could make a point like this. Those same investment bankers only get paid if you do the deal that they are insisting is the best one that's available. Now, you know, if you think to all of our experience in everyday life, and I always ask board members this question, would any of you in your right mind believe a used car salesman if they told you that there's no need to get the car checked out by a mechanic before buying it because it's in quote unquote fantastic shape, would you take their advice? And everybody always says the same thing. Well, of course not. I mean, they have a huge incentive to be, uh, you know, let's call it something less than truthful with you. And my response to them is, well, you shouldn't believe bankers either because they have the exact same conflict of interest, except instead of maybe eight or 10 or $15,000, they have a multi-million dollar conflict of interest, right? They only get paid if you do their financing. So when it comes to investment banks, when it comes to these growth financings that small cap companies effectuate literally every business day, boards need to trust but verify. And, and fortunately, it's pretty easy for boards to trust but verify because every public company, including all of your company's peers, have to disclose the financing terms of every financing that they do. And so every board of a small cap company that requires growth capital needs to become 
experts in what their peer company financings have looked like of late, full stop. I mean, and the best thing about that expertise uh, is that it's 100% free. And so uh, an, another piece of advice that I can kind of uh, think about that I, that I give often uh, that usually uh, brings about maybe one of the reactions or two that you're, uh, that you're uh, discussing, Amy, is that if you want to have a board that's a true competitive advantage, they need to be as expert in your industry as possible. And although that seems intuitive, it's amazing how many boards are not appropriately expert uh, in their industries. And one great cost-effective, yet I would argue, unfortunately, rarely used way to ensure this is to mandate that every board member has to attend your industry trade conference. We all know that every industry has an industry trade conference. doesn't matter how big or how small the industry is. And once at that event, really high-performing small-cap companies give those board members a homework assignment. In other words, each board member is responsible for learning everything they can, uh, short, of, <laughs> short of espionage, let's say, uh, about a designated competitor. And at the next board dinner, every director is responsible for educating the entire board about that competitor. And look, CEOs, and I hear this literally every week, CEOs complain all the time, oftentimes rightfully, mind you, that their board isn't sufficiently up to speed on their industry. Well, this is a comparatively uh, cheap, highly effective way to fix uh, that problem. So there's, uh, there's my, my attempt at common sense, uh, Amy, for you. <laughs> yeah. Again, easy to, easy to put in practice and definitely something that is kind of probably an aha moment, a genius in the simplicity of it. Right. Yep. So this is why I invited you on Adam. <laughs> um, so you've contributed to a number of governance focused organizations over the years, including co-founding an entrepreneurial governance column in directorship magazine and appearing regularly on the NASDAQ small cap education platform and within the NASDAQ's entrepreneurial center. So more recently you've become highly involved in the small cap Institute. Can you share what that's all about? Uh, sure. Thanks. Thanks for asking actually about, uh, about small cap Institute. I mean, I'm pretty passionate about what they are, uh, addressing, you know, when you operate and when you govern and you, uh, invest billions of dollars in small cap companies, as frankly, small cap institutes, editorial advisory board members have, there are, I think a few takeaways. I think that uh, chief among them is that uh, perhaps outside of parenting, <laughs> there are few harder jobs than leading a small cap company. And those of your listeners who know that firsthand are probably nodding their heads right now listening. And life for small cap officers and for small cap directors is, for lack of maybe a uh, a more artful term is is lonely, and and even the most confident among that group will experience bouts of of pretty severe self doubt. It just kind of comes with the ecosystem. And to make matters worse, small cap stock prices are typically pretty volatile, and and the volatility of those stock prices embolden 
every different form of would-be advisor to tell small cap officers and directors what they're doing wrong. And most of that advice to be charitable, Amy, uh, ain't great. So Small Cap Institute's mission is simple and admittedly, though, quite daunting at the same time. And that is to maximize the chances of success for uh, forward-looking small cap leaders through what I would characterize as kind of a first-of-its-kind community, a community, incidentally, that's only open to small cap officers and directors where they can learn from renowned investors, where they can learn from capital markets experts, and they interestingly can, uh, and, and poignantly, I guess, perhaps even is a better way to describe it, they can learn from each other. And and. Small Cap Institute's founder, David Scher, who's, who himself is a well-regarded small cap uh, investor, created the community in two parts. One part is an exhaustive knowledge library of pretty practical uh, articles of varying, varying types of, of length, uh, some of them uh, long form, old school, you know, thousands of words, some of them more blog style, four or 500 words, written by uh, really experienced investors and other uh, bona fide small cap experts that address common capital markets, corporate finance, and boardroom problems that we know small cap leaders face every day. And the other part of the community is composed of interactive forums where public company officers and directors can, as I alluded to a second ago, learn from each other and anonymously discuss whatever's on their minds. So. What makes uh, Small Cap Institute so unique from, from my perspective, anyway, Amy, is that, I, as I alluded to a second ago, membership is only available to public company officers and directors. And every potential uh, member is carefully authenticated. And because everyone involved with the formation of Small Cap Institute is so passionate about helping small cap officers and directors succeed, uh, we obviously know how much is on the line. Everybody knew that it had to be 100% free for the members. So for those uh, executives and professionals who don't qualify for membership, we also post new content for them monthly at uh, smallcapinstitute.com. Uh, and so, you know, I guess a few closing, you know, maybe thoughts about about Small Cap Institute, just to sum up my involvement, I, I get asked to join a lot of boards, but Small Cap Institute is the only one that I've agreed to. Uh, and, and so I'm really enjoying being chair of, of its editorial advisory board. And though it's still very early days in the formation of Small Cap Institute, I would say the, uh, the proof is kind of in the proverbial pudding so far in that we already have hundreds uh, of members, quite a few uh, from Fortune 100 boards, by the way, Amy, which is kind of interesting. Uh, and we also have dozens now of small cap investment funds that have decided to publicly pledge their support for SCI's mission. So, you know, it's a, it's a really fun, important project. And before long, uh, I think we'll probably announce some some pretty compelling content partnerships that will help drive the maturation uh, of that community. So I, I hope I answered your question, Amy. 
No, you did. And I, I think it's an excellent endeavor. And, and hopefully uh, you'll get some new members for from folks tuning into this. So look forward to hearing more and more about that. And so I think one of the last areas I want to talk with you today about is, is obviously what I mentioned earlier. One of the best things I like in working with you is that you always leave the audience with some thoughtful and immediate action items they can begin to do right away. So as we uh, wrap up today here, what, in your opinion, should truly be top of mind for small cap board members, or even those aspiring to be small cap director? Wow, well, that's that's a lot to live up to, <laughs> yikes. So I uh, better <laughs> choose my words carefully here. So let's see, um, for existing small cap board members, uh, I would say this, in addition, in addition to attending your annual trade show to help make sure you are as aware as a small cap director, uh, you're as, as aware as possible of kind of the various existential threat vectors that could, could affect your company. I would add that small cap boards need to ensure that the CEO meets annually at a minimum with the company's five largest investors. And for the time being, of course, that can be telephonically done or via web conference. But going forward, when the world kind of returns to normalcy, those meetings need to be in person. Okay, and here's the thing about those meetings, Amy, and why, particularly from a buy side perspective, it's important. There should be at least one independent board member who attends at least a handful of those meetings. And thereafter, just like with the trade show, where every board member had kind of a homework assignment, that board member needs to report back to the independent board members what their largest investors are concerned about. So the combined direct industry and buy-side feedback uh, can really be transformational to boards. I've seen it with my own eyes, not only with my kind of buy-side hat on, but also as someone who advises these boards. Uh, particularly since, and this is really important, particularly since the overwhelming majority of shareholder activism is actually in small cap companies. A lot of it can be avoided if you understand regularly what's on the minds of your largest investors. And again, there are board members hearing it firsthand. Uh, for aspiring small cap board members, I would say this, and this is going to be uh, uh, as candid as I can be. <laughs> I get asked weekly to help people who are trying to find a board seat, notwithstanding the fact that I'm not a search firm, but I get asked weekly to help people because they know that uh, I'm in touch with an awful lot of small cap companies. And, and look, this is ad admittedly going to sound uh, a little harsh, but I help virtually none of them. Uh, and here is the reason why I don't. When someone comes to me and says, hey, Adam, I would love to find a public company board seat, quote unquote. What I hear with my former institutional investor hat on is a little bit different. <laughs> what I hear is, Adam, from what I hear, uh, board service can be a pretty lucrative part-time job. You know, I, I'd like one of those, but I'm so lazy that I can't even be bothered to narrow down my search aperture to a few companies where I believe that I could be super impactful from day one. So my not so subtle message to those seeking small cap board seats is the following. Telling everyone you want a board seat in your network is in reality, 
a hopelessly ineffective way to get a board seat. And with all deference to those who dispense that advice, if it were actually effective advice, there wouldn't be literally thousands, okay? Thousands of really highly qualified board candidates who, let's be really clear about this, haven't found a board seat and are not going to, okay? So do the work, find a small number of small cap companies that you are passionate about and believe you are uniquely suited to help. And then, and only then, you should begin reaching out to people associated with those companies. So that's all I got for you, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> no, again, perfect sense. Um, and, and it's funny, I, I share those things with you. I think in, in my uh, in my experience and the number of board members that I come into contact with, I often get that question too. And it, it always surprises me how little people have kind of done in terms of homework. I think I told a story the other day um, on a webcast actually about an individual who again shall be nameless, but at a dinner party and his comment to me after I said, oh, I, you know, I'm in kind of the corporate governance education area with public company boards. And his comment to me was like, oh yeah, you know, I think I'm going to do that. I'm going to join a board once, you know, I'm ready to retire. Like, like it was something like, I'm going to change my tie to go with this shirt once I uh, <laughs> gonna change for dinner. So, you know, it just, it kind of just struck me as, you know, the naivete of some individuals that really don't understand the legwork required, the investment of your time and energy, and really understanding, to your point earlier, what it is, it is, excuse me, what is it about yourself that is going to absolutely be able to propel a particular company forward? What is, what are you going to be contributing to this board that they don't already have that's going to take them to that next level. So I, th I think just being really honest and candid with yourself, and as always, you're honest and candid with everyone. So I truly appreciate your thoughts here. I'm very happy that you agreed to join me today and uh, look forward to speaking with you again um, in the future. So thank you, Adam Epstein. Not at all. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to BDO in the Boardroom. Past episodes and related insights are available at bdo.com slash bdo boardroom. Or you can go to iTunes or Spotify to rate, review, and subscribe. The views expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of BDO. For more information on the BDO Center for Corporate Governance and Financial Reporting and the resources we provide, visit bdo.com slash bdo knows governance.